There are certain moments and words that shaped a new era in pro wrestling. Austin 316 says I just whipped your ass. Brett screwed Brett. Die, Rocky, die. Introducing the Book of Wrestling, 25 catchphrases that explain the Attitude Era. Tune in as we relive one of the most exciting, intense, and over-the-top times in WWE with new interviews with the voices that made the promos, calls, and catchphrases into history. Listen now. It's New York, New York, presented by FanDuel. The second half of the NBA season is here, and you can bet on the action with an assist from FanDuel, America's number one sports book. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays. And same-game parlays, all on one page. Plus, Start betting on the Explore page and the Pulse and Bet Live. Same game parlays for every NBA game. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit theringer.com slash RG to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus and present. In select states, gambling problem, call 100Gambler or visit theringer.com slash RG. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC slim fit trouser, but I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. Israel, baby, welcome in. Monday edition, New York, New York. Yes, truly. JJ Johnson Shremsky right here on the Ringer Podcast Network. And we're officially a month in to the 2022 Major League Baseball season. But here's what I know, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. The toast of baseball. The toast of the town. The two local baseball teams are taking names, kicking ass, and playing a winning brand of ball. What a concept. What a sight. The Mets, that's where we got to start. They win another series this weekend. They have not lost the series all freaking year. It's now May 2nd, correct me if I'm wrong. And the Mets keep churning. They keep winning. Against the Phillies over the weekend, big divisional test here over the next 12, 13 games. How did they start it off? A combined no-hitter. And look, the combined no-hitter is never going to get you the same fanfare and acclaim and all the good vibes that an individual no-hitter is going to get you. It, it just doesn't feel the same, but it's still nice to see. And 
You can now put it on the list as number two for Mets fans who are at Johan Santana's no hitter back in 2012. If you were at Friday night's game, more power to you. I know some of you were looking for a live Spotify live. I, I was at emo night, full disclosure. So my Friday night was consumed after the fact, watching these games till like three, four in the morning. Cause I had the basketball and the Yankees and a little bit of the Mets. I was all over the place Friday night. So that's why you didn't get AJ room. But all in all, the Mets get the no hitter Friday. It was a tough one because of the bullpen stinking it up on Saturday. And then Sunday, Dom Smith and Jeff McNeil, four hits apiece. And the Mets got to shrink their roster from 28 to 26. How do you send Dominic Smith down? Dominic Smith needs to be playing more. I know I defended Robinson Cano first week of the year. His presence on the team, getting Lindor comfortable. I thought he'd hit a little bit. He has not hit at all. So if the roster spot is coming down to Robinson Cano or Dominic Smith, Dominic Smith should be on the team. But there are other guys you can send down. There are creative ways to do this. But Dom basically sending a Sicilian message on Sunday. Hey, four hits, don't send me down. And Jeff McNeil has been a completely different guy than what he was last year. Completely different. He's back to being a spray hitter. He's back to putting the ball in play and making things happen. This is the guy we saw in 2019 and 2020. Not the guy we saw last year that was basically involved in every trade rumor known to men. A lot of Mets fans wanted McNeil out. I didn't because of what I'm seeing this year. I was asked this question about an hour ago on SNY about the catalyst for this Met lineup. And Lindor's been great, and Marte's made things happen, and Escobar's been good. Don't get me wrong, but McNeil reverting to the player he was from a few years ago. I think has completely changed the landscape and the feel of the Met offensive attack. And they're playing great ball. There is absolutely nothing to complain about from a Met standpoint. Life is good. Got news for you, though. On the other side of town, life is pretty damn good if you're a fan of the New York Yankees. And I felt like last year in our New York, New York infancy, we spent so much time killing the Yankees unenjoyable regular season, got out of the gate sluggishly, didn't approach the regular season with the sort of attitude that I, for one, and many other Yankee fans were looking for. Well, I got news for you. The Yankees on Thursday and the Yankees today won two games. They do not win a season ago. What I've liked so much about this team a month in, they fall behind. They get kicked in the face. They get off the mat. They're fighting. They're scratching. They're clawing. I know the Orioles stink. I know the Kansas City Royals are no great shakes. Okay, let me make that perfectly clear. These are not great baseball teams. These are the same teams, though, that the New York Yankees were not sweeping last year. The fact that they are sweeping these teams, the fact that they are red hot and that they are 16 and six on the year and they've won nine games in a row is something you should feel good about. You're down three after Severino gets off to a rocky start. I love the approach offensively. Connor Falefa and the Hall gets sent down, gets a big hit. Lemayu, who had been cold on Saturday, gets a big hit. And then they finally capitalize in the top half of the seventh inning. Sometimes you got to get lucky. Judge, check swing. Better to be lucky than good. Donaldson ends up getting the RBI ground out. Good hustle by Anthony Rizzo. And Aaron Judge stole the show. Home run the first inning. Home run the ninth inning. He's been locked in for a week. 
This is the sort of effort that is equivalent of betting on yourself. Now, that's what I'm talking about, Aaron Judge. And the Yankees don't win this game without Michael King. How good has Michael King been for the Yankees? And I don't know what, listen, I haven't killed much Aaron Boone this year. I actually think he's done a pretty good job, all things considered. I know. I, I can't believe I'm saying it either. Going to Wiki in the seventh inning was absurd. Either keep Schmidt in or go to King right away. King bails out his manager. He bails out Litke. He gets the double play. Chapman always starts off the season great. His wall is probably going to come in the middle of June, guaranteed. Happens every single year. And life is good in Yankee land. Life is good for New York baseball. For the shit we've had to endure with the football and the basketball, this, it, 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 enjoy it, okay? Enjoy it. The Mets, big test. Atlanta Braves. Team you got to beat. The world champs. You want to win the division, you got to beat the Atlanta Braves. Yankees, similar test this week. Toronto Blue Jays, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Want to win the division, got to beat the big boys. That's what's in front of these two teams. Fun little week. Mets taking on the Braves, Yankees taking on the Blue Jays. Whole lot of good feelings in New York baseball. Um, I still think, all things considered, there is a lot of feel-good vibes around the NFL draft. And the more and more I think about the Jets, and listen, I wanted them to take Kayvon Thibodeau over Sauce Gardner. I acknowledge that. And you could probably even notice it in my conversation with Beningo. My feelings around the Jet draft kind of changed the minute they made that trade to get back into the third round. Really, like, uh, they get back in the first round where they get that third number one pick and they get a pass rusher in Johnson. I'm like, oh, holy moly, makes sense now. And are they getting a corner as good as Sauce Gardner if they go with Kayvon Thibodeau? So, like, I, I, I understand the logic there. To go and get Hall, an all-purpose, complete, three-down running back that you compare with Michael Carter, really nice under the radar pick. That is going to be the two-headed monster LaFleur has been looking for that he had when he was watching Kyle Shanahan and Mike McDaniel work in offense when he was with the San Francisco 49ers. That is what the Jets are going to look to create. From a Giants standpoint, I know there were some folks trying to make the argument they should go and take Malik Willis. I'm not, like, devastated from a Giants perspective that they passed on a quarterback. I'm really not devastated because this is make it a breaker for Jones. You have Tyrod Taylor as a backup. And the Giants are not going to be a particularly good team next year. Okay? You are going to be picking at the top of the draft probably next year anyway. So that'll be your chance to go and get a quarterback. Some Giant fans were maybe angling for Malik Willis. Doesn't end up happening. So, listen, all in all, lots to feel good about with these two New York drafts. Now it's about getting results on the field. and. There will be a lot more pressure on results from a Jet standpoint than a Giants standpoint. Remember, this Jet regime, quarterback's back another year. Douglas has been here for a couple of years. Sooner or later, you got to make some sort of leap. Giants, this is brand spanking new regime. Coach, GM, going to get a lot more leeway as we get closer and closer this season. And before we hit two quick voicemails, and then we have a loaded show. We have Mike Tannenbaum and Paul O'Neill, which is like heavy hitter type stuff. Allison Turner, Stefan on their A-game, as usual. But the New York Rangers are getting ready for the postseason. And I know 
throughout the regular season, we don't do a lot of hockey on the show. I admit that. I acknowledge that. It is what it is. But I'm a sucker for playoff hockey. We got into it last year with the Islanders. And I am very intrigued by this Ranger-Penguin series. The Rangers are minus 115 with their dominance over the Penguins throughout the regular season. I, for one, thought this line was going to be a little bit higher with the hot goaltender in Shesterkin and Nett. I thought the Rangers would be in like the 145-150 range, truth be told. They've had a feel-good regular season. The trade deadline certainly complemented their team. Kreider has had a monster, monster year. Fox, Panarin, across the board, they're a young team. But with a goaltender as talented as Igor, it leads you to believe, hey, we could have a dream a little bit here. This is the sort of first-down series. The Rangers get bounced and lose to the Penguins. With the pedigree and with the guys they have coming back, healthiest they've been in a while, I'm not going to be shocked. The line should indicate you shouldn't be shocked. But the Stanley Cup playoffs is one of those events where if you get out of the first round, then all of a sudden you're dreaming about a second-round series. And you could go on a little bit of a ride here. I'm not going to pretend to be the hockey expert. I'm not going to sit here and tell you I've watched the Rangers play 80 games this year because I have not. What I am hoping for, is that we go on a little bit of a ride over the next couple of weeks. We'll have our hockey people on over the next couple of weeks. We'll get them on. We'll get them in the mix. But even series, that's the way I look at Rangers and Penguins right now. My gut feel, because that line is as low as it is, Ranch fans are going to like to hear this, I would put my money on the Penguins. I don't know if I want to do that. I don't know if I want to be actively rooting against the Rangers every single one of these games. It's kind of no fun. We want to have additional fun and content here on this show. But that betting line is very, very scary. So... A lot cooking, man. Two red-hot baseball teams, Braves, Mets, Yankees, Blue Jays, Rangers, Penguins. What a time to be alive. The Jets and Giants nailing their draft picks. Speaking of that, we'll have Mike Tannenbaum a little bit. All right, two quick voicemails right out of the gate here. Stefan, let's hear them. Hey, JJ, Sean from Long Island. Thanks for taking the call, man. I know it's been a while. You've been killing it on the pod. Uh, I kind of went into hibernation after such a rotten year for the Islanders. But, you know, in Barry we trust, in Lou we trust, and I'll hopefully get back next year. Uh, still my favorite time of the year, whether the Islanders are in or not, the NHL playoffs. Uh, certainly no Jeff Bundy, but just some uh, Eastern Conference picks for the first round. Not so good on the Western Conference. But in the East, I'm taking the Penguins over the Rangers. A little bit of bias here, obviously, but I do think, despite their magical year, the Rangers are a little too green, a little too young, and the Penguins may not be in their prime anymore, but I think they have a playoff moxie to sneak by the Rangers. I have the Penguins at minus 105. Panthers. Uh, to wipe out the Capitals, they're minus 355. Not playing enough value there to actually bet it. But I do like Panthers. Um, I'm taking the Carolina Hurricanes at minus 124 over the Bruins. And my favorite bet of this first round is Toronto minus 122 over Tampa. I feel like seeing Tampa at plus money, they're begging you to take the two-time defending champs. But I love Toronto in the first round. Thanks so much, JJ. Take care. Keep killing, man. Bye. I appreciate that call. You should have optimism when it comes to Joe Douglas. I like the plan for the Jets. I think the biggest question is front and center with this quarterback. He's super talented. He's got a big arm. He's got mobility. Does he have the right makeup between the ears? That's my question with Wilson. It's not about the talent. Turnovers. Being cerebral. Reading defenses. He's got to do a much better job of that in the second year. Much, much better job. And we'll see if he's up to the challenge. I think that determines how big of a leap the Jets can make. I still have them as the fourth team within this division. 
Buffalo is by far and away the clear-cut number one. Buffalo is favorite to win the Super Bowl. I have Miami, too. I have New England, three. I think Miami is a better roster. Pound for pound, they're better. And I think the Jets are four. I think the Jets are an improved four, but I still think they're four. That's the challenge going into this year. It's loaded. And I mean a loaded AFC. All right, who's next? Hey, JJ, Sean Long Island. Thanks for taking the call, man. I know it's been a while. You've been killing it on the pod. Uh, I kind of went into hibernation after such a rotten year for the Islanders. But, you know, in Barry we trust, in Lou we trust, and I'll hopefully get back next year. Uh, still my favorite time of the year, whether the Islanders are in or not, the NHL playoffs. Uh, certainly no Jeff Bundy, but just some uh, Eastern Conference picks for the first round. Not so good on the Western Conference. But in the East, I'm taking the Penguins over the Rangers. A little bit of bias here, obviously, but I do think, despite their magical year, the Rangers are a little too green, a little too young, and the Penguins may not be in their prime anymore, but I think they had a playoff moxie to sneak by the Rangers. I have the Penguins at minus 105. Panthers, uh, to wipe out the Capitals, they're minus 355. Not playing enough value there to actually bet it, but I do like Panthers. Um, I'm taking the Carolina Hurricanes at minus 124 over the Bruins. And my favorite bet of this first round is Toronto minus 122 over Tampa. I feel like seeing Tampa at plus money, they're begging you to take the two-time defending champs, but I love Toronto in the first round. Thanks so much, JJ. Take care. Keep killing, man. Bye. I appreciate it, Sean. I think your lean is correct on the Rangers and Penguins series with the line being what it is. Penguins got dominated by the Rangers throughout the regular season, but don't put a whole lot of stock in that. I think that's a seven-game series. I really do. Toronto and Tampa, I'm telling you, that line stinks. Tampa, Cup champs, back-to-back years. They're getting money plus odds against a team that never wins in Toronto. That line stinks. You got to put your faith and confidence in the Toronto Maple Leafs. I understand that, but that line flat out stinks. That line stinks. And the Boston line stinks because everybody and their mother is going to bet Boston with their playoff pedigree. See, I, I'm, I'm in the NHL postseason from a gambling perspective. I might have dove into these. Sure did. Got to make sure we're on our game. We're off to a nice start in the NBA postseason, let me tell you. Thank you, Clay Thompson, for missing a couple of free throws down the stretch. Significant to some. Oh, yeah. All right. We got a loaded rest of the show coming your way. And if you need to get in touch with New York, New York, and you want to get in touch with New York, New York, of course you do. It's where you want to be. 917-382-1151. So coming up next, Mike Tannenbaum going to tie a nice bowler on the draft. Jets, Giants, killing it every which way. And then one of my favorite New York athletes, one of my favorite ball players ever, the Warrior, Paul O'Neill. He's got a new book out, 2022 New York Yankees, his career. You're going to love that conversation with Paulie. So, Mike Tannenbaum, Paul O'Neill. Talk about a loaded show. That's a loaded Monday show. This team's up next. Ooh, hold up. Smell test. Go ahead. Sniff those pits. Now, your bits. Feet, toes, come on. Could be fresher, right? It's all good. Old Spice Total Body Deodorant Spray is gentle enough to use all over your body, giving you 24-7 lasting freshness with daily use. From pits to toes and down below. So every smell test gets a... (sighs) Shop for Old Spice Total Body Deodorant. An eventful draft, no doubt. The New York Giants and the New York Jets with a whole lot of action in the first round. We welcome in a guy who knows a thing or two about making picks in the first round. He had a bunch with the New York Jets a long, long time ago. He is a rock star on ESPN. Mr. T, Mike Tannenbaum. What's happening? How are you, sir? JJ, how are you, sir? 
Uh, I'm doing well. Uh, Brooklyn parking after the five borough bike tour is not exactly ideal. But hey, you know, there's some issues and trouble and problems when you end up living in the five boroughs. A lot of Jeff fans and Giant fans are fired up. And when you have two top 10 picks, look, there's a reason why you have two top 10 picks. You haven't gotten a whole lot right over these last few years. Overall, as a whole, would you say Jets and Giants knocked it out of the park in the opening round? Yeah, absolutely. They're both really solid, starting with the Giants. You know, I believe it starts up front. You get a guy like Kayvon Thibodeau who has great upside. He um, Some questions about him, some bumps in the road in the pre-draft process. So I think that's why he slid to the five. But um, he should be that sort of difference maker, a pass rush. You know, they drafted Aziz Ojolari, who I think is still going to be a good player, but he's nowhere near this guy's ability. And what I like about Evan Neal in particular for them is he has played right tackle. So with an improved Andrew Thomas, I think you have two real – SEC long levered athletic bookend tackles. If Daniel Jones is ever going to be productive, it's with those tackles. As for the Jets, it, you know, it probably couldn't have gone any better. But just to start with, you get Sauce Gardner. I don't know why Houston didn't take him. Just much more productive, much more durable than Derek Stanley. Garrett Wilson, I like a lot. You know, the only knock on him maybe is a little undersized. Like when you see him, you're not going to be blown away physically, but. Great route runner, really good hands, can play outside. So I think he complements what they have with Elijah Moore. I think, you know, when you look at somehow, some way, you know, Johnson slipped for them, Jermaine Johnson, the uh, Georgia transfer who was at Florida State, big, thick guy. I thought Joe Douglas did a great job to trade up for him. And then they got a really solid back of Reese Hall. He's a three-down back, pass protect, he can catch. So it was a really productive start for the Jets. I love Kayvon Thibodeau. I think he's a beast. I know there are questions about how he'd fit in New York. Mike, you know this. When you're a guy who performs and you have the sort of flair and bravado that you bring to the table, New York's going to fall in love with you. Now, the idea of like coronating him and crowning him is going to be premature, but I think this guy has double-digit sack machine written all over him. So I love it from a Giants standpoint. When they're at their best, they've always had a pass rusher. But from a Jets standpoint, do you think they made the right call going with Sauce Gardner over Kayvon Thibodeau? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, time will tell. I'm a big, you know, the, all the great teams, like we trade up for Xavier and Howard in Miami, obviously Darrell Revis, Cromartie, Kyle Wilson. I think in this day and age, if you don't have corners, you get sent home pretty quick. You, you need three frontline corners, you know, and I just think Sauce Gardner's too good to pass up, so i probably go with him. Again, I don't I don't think I take Stingley over Thibodeau because I'm just a big believer in like what you did in college is a direct reflection of what we should expect in the pro level. Um, do you see any similarities? Xavier Howard, a guy you were part of drafting, he's a stud with the Miami Dolphins and Sauce Gardner. Yeah, I do. And actually I see a lot of similarities between Sauce and Cromarty, sort of like those longer arm guys. X is a little thicker than than Sauce. Um Xavier's a like really strong guy. And I would tell you, like, Sauce to me is just a great athlete. He's long levered. He can play the ball. He can change the direction. Um, I think he's your classic, like, man to man outside. And, and you've got to be able to play man to man third down, get off the field in this league. And um, I think what the Jets really have now is Tyreek Hill's in the division. Stefan Diggs is in the division. That had to play a role, right, Mike? The idea that Dolphins getting Tyreek Hill and having Waddle. 
and Diggs being in Buffalo. Like, if I'm Douglas, I'm almost sitting there saying to myself, I need a corner if I'm going to be playing these guys four times a year. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, you know, look, New England, Devontae Parker or Nelson Aguilar, you, you need, you've got to be able to get off the field. And now they can say, hey, Kyrie close out there. Well, we got our guy. Let's go. You know, and if you don't have that, it's really hard to win. You love Johnson. I heard you mention this a couple of days ago when I was watching you on television. You think he's a legitimate top 10 pick, right? Like the idea that the Jets were smart enough to see a guy like this fall, make the move, get him, trade up to go and get him. They got a top 10 type of talent in Johnson, correct? Yeah, I, I actually, um, I think in some ways he may be not the pass rusher that Thibodeau is, but a more complete player. What I mean by that, he's really good at stopping the run. He's thick. Um, he really stood out to be at the senior bowl. He reminded me a little bit of actually of Pearl Banks. You know, Pearl was not like the most sudden guy. Like, I don't think this guy is like Jason Taylor, like ripping off the edge. But I think what he is, like, he's really thick on the tackles. He is strong and sturdy. I just like the way he plays the game. And I think one of the pro and, you know, I'm guilty of this, by the way, when I say this, but I think sometimes in the media, like, we could say, like, oh, you know, he was a disappointment as a rookie. So he only had four sacks. Well, he may only have four sacks and be dominant because he could create production for others. He could stop the run. I think the Jet defense has just been really leaky. I think he's a guy that could be really part of the solution. Wide receiver is going to be fascinating because you had three guys go 10, 11, and 12, and you had two teams right after the Jets go up and make a trade. New Orleans did for Olave. The Lions do for Jamison Williams. You think the Jets got the right guy? You know what's amazing, too, is those three guys were teammates. Isn't that crazy? Can you imagine? Like, that's not fair. Brian Hartline, your old buddy, is probably like, I get to coach these guys. They're going to make me look good, Mike. Yeah. You know, Jamison Williams, I've said this, I, he was one of the three best players in the draft. You know, if he was healthy, you can make it. He's a top he five pick if he's healthy, right? Uh, he may have been the best player. He looked like Tyreek Hill to me. He had game-changing speed. Look, again, Garrett Wilson, I, he's like a no-holds guy for me. Like, I think he comes in. He is a really productive receiver. Olave is a little bit smaller. You know, if Wilson's slightly undersized, Olave is even smaller. That's funny. And then a couple picks later, Jahan Dotson goes to the Commanders, who's even smaller than those guys and still a number one receiver. So that's kind of where the game is going. But Jamison Williams to me is a little bit, he's just on a whole nother level, uh, just given you know his speed. Mike, give me a team that you look at their draft now outside of two locals and you just absolutely fell in love. You know, I thought Baltimore, when you think about getting guys like Linderbaum, getting guys like Ojabo, Ojabo would have been a first-round pick if he didn't get hurt, Kyle Hamilton, um, and a couple other tie-ins. I, I thought they got a, like, did a really, really good job. And they're one of those teams that just knows what they're doing. Like, there are yeah. certain teams when they make a draft pick, it's like, yeah, Baltimore's drafting them, Baltimore's on the up and up. They know they have a clue. Um, as far as the quarterbacks, are you a Kenny Pickett guy, or do you think some of the other quarterbacks, specifically Malik Willis, have the potential to be top? Like, if you're going to bet on one guy, let me put it this way. I'm going to rephrase it this way. If you could bet on one guy to be a top half, top 12 to top 15 NFL quarterback, who in this class is that guy? It's Pickett. He reminded me a little bit of Pennington. You know, I saw some Matt Chavez game. He can get the ball down the field. He's a good athlete, not a great athlete, but I think will be rock solid and be productive for years. You think about your draft when you had the brick and you had Mangold, or you think about when you were a part of the Jets 
and it's Sean Ellis and John Abraham and Chad Pennington. And so talk me through what that's like as a GM when you're sitting there with like multiple first round picks. Is it like, is it like waiting to open up presents on Christmas Day, Mike? I feel like that'd be the feeling if I were a GM, man. It's the greatest feeling in the world just because you feel like you're really making, you're, you're creating distance with your competitors. And um, I'm sure that's how the Jets felt the other night. Like, hey, you know, what is it? Like five out of the last six years, I think they've been last place. And I'm, I think finally they felt like, okay, like, let's roll. Like, let's go compete. You know, we got real guys with juice and frontline ability. It's really exciting. And and look, you know, there's a little bit of a honeymoon out for a couple of months. Uh, they got to go do it on the field. But at least now they have, you know, Brees Hall's a real guy. Like even this Rucker guy, like he's a tough Y and they signed CJ Uzma from the Bengals. You know, they, they got better this year. The AFC East is their biggest problem, though. I mean, you look at that division. You got Buffalo, who I think is the Super Bowl favorite. Miami adds Tyree Kill and Armstead. New England's New England. Is there a path for the Jets? to get to, like, seven wins. See, that's the problem, Mike. I think they're better. I think they'll be far more competitive. I don't see how they're winning more than six games in this division. Yeah. It's all going to come down to the quarterback. I guess the way you look at it, right, if you were drafting Mac Jones, Zach Wilson, and Tua, how would you draft those three quarterbacks? If I'm drafting them, I guess, for me, and this is coming from a Dolphin bias, potentially, I'm still taking two over those other two guys. I did not love Mike Jones last year, Mike. I did not. I mean, especially down the stretch, the Indianapolis game, the, the Buffalo game, he was terrible in the playoffs, and he's got Belichick and McDaniels. He's got two of the best to ever do it. The arm talent and the upside for Wilson is probably going to profile over the other two, but is there smarts? Is there a sort of leadership intangible that's there? I know those Alabama quarterbacks have that. I've seen that. I know when you, let me put it this way, you're drafting a quarterback. Are you drafting a quarterback smarts or is it the physical intangibles you're looking for above those other two attributes? Oh, you got it. If you're not smart, you have no shot. You have no chance whatsoever. You got to be like cerebral to handle that position, right? Like that, that's my fear with Wilson. I don't know if he has that in him. That's the question. I agree. Um, I thought he got better, but ball security is going to be really important for him. And you know, I think Jeff fans always felt like, Hey, this will be Sam Darnold here. Like he's going to get over the hump, you know, and that never happened. And, you know, this is going to be a big year for Zach Wilson. If you look now at his skill players, there, there's there's no excuse. I'll tell you this, though. It's Josh Allen and everybody else, and we're talking about the quarterbacks in the AFC East. And final thought, Mike. I know you were a part of a team that had an opportunity a couple of years ago to get Justin Herbert. I should have listened to you guys because you guys do what you were doing. If you had Justin Herbert in Miami, I'd be a much happier man these days. Neither here nor there. The Eagles going and getting A.J. Brown. The Dolphins and going and getting Tyree Kill and Armstead. Fair to say, right? Miami, Philly, Hurts, Tua, the old teammates at Bama, they've basically said to those two quarterbacks, no excuses now. We've done everything in our power to surround you with talent. It's perform or get the hell out. I I love it because now I don't have any question about Tua going into this year. Is that fair to say with those two guys? 100%. And, you know, look at, look at A.J. Brown and... I mean, Devontae Smith. That those is, are studs, man. I'd love to throw yeah. the ball at those two guys. And then Hill, <laughs> hey, Tua doesn't got to throw it 50 yards down the field if Hill and Waddle are going to take it 40 or 50. That's exactly right. Yeah. No, both those quarterbacks will know a lot more of them by the end of the year than we know today. Mike Tannenbaum, rock star over at ESPN, killing it all week with the draft coverage. Thanks for a couple of minutes. Uh, Jeff fans are hoping that maybe they have another McMangold or they have another DeBrickashaw Ferguson. We'll see. We'll see if uh, Sauce Gardner is living up to that billing, my friend. 
All right, we'll see. I thanks so much. Appreciate you having me. So I'm stoked to welcome in a New York, New York, one of my favorite New York athletes. It's not even close. Like when I think of my glory years in my childhood, it's this guy getting big hits, slamming water coolers, and winning world championships. Paul O'Neill, Yes Network, and he's got a book with Jack Curry. It's phenomenal. Swinging a hit, nine innings of what baseball taught me. Paulie, what's happening, brother? How you doing, man? You know what? I, I'm almost embarrassed with that introduction. That was that, that's pretty cool. But you know what? That is really what this book is about. What you kind of just touched on is, you know, you you visualize yourself in in certain periods of time and life uh, of, of sports and baseball. In my my account and yours also, it, it just brings back a ton of memories. Paulie, I believe it, and I'm reliving them in the book. And it's great now I can like read a chapter in the book and then go on YouTube and like visualize whether it's the Benitez at bat or the catch against Polonia in 96. But what was the inspiration? Because I read Jack Curry's book with Coney that came mm-hmm. out a couple of years ago. Learned so much about pitching. I love the fact that you decided to sit down with Jack and, and do this project. But what was the inspiration for you? Well, uh, first of all, is because I know Jack so well. I mean, we worked together so long with Yes. And even before, you know, when I was playing, he is a reporter and I trust Jack. And, you know, when we got together, we started talking about and, and, you know, this isn't a book on just hitting one size fits all. You know, this was my account. This is what went through my head. Uh, and some of the people that, um, you know, brought back memories were all the way back from the early days of being drafted in Cincinnati through the minor leagues, through Pete Rose, and then on to the championship years of, of New York. So it brought a ton of memories back to me. Jack did a great job of kind of jogging my memory and bringing out stories. And, uh, you know, I hope that uh, people enjoy it and see it that way. I knew this because anybody who followed your career knew full well the influence that your father had on you. And of course, we remember what happened in 1999. But for you specifically, Paul, working with your dad, kind of like honing your craft on trying to be a baseball player. When was the moment for you? Was it very early on? Was it like high school age where you were thinking to yourself somewhere in Ohio? I think I can do this professionally. Well, my father told me that when I was very young. I mean, I don't think this is a really uh, an odd story. I think when you grow up in the Midwest and your summers are based around Little League Baseball, uh, I had four old brothers. My father coached the team. So his dreams kind of became our dreams. And uh, and then when all of a sudden you get into high school and you start to see, you know, major league scouts coming to games, all of a sudden you start to realize, you know, I might have a chance at this thing. And, uh, you know, it's something that I, I literally can can tell you that I, I sat in the backyard playing home run derby with my brothers and dreamed about and tried to emulate players and and just, uh, you know, that's the way I grew up. Uh, you know, kids, it's a little different now, but it seems like uh, a fun era of my life where Little League games were just as important as Major League games at that time in your life. You work your way up and you're an Ohio boy playing for the Cincinnati Reds. Was that like, like, holy smokes, I can't believe it. I'm playing for my hometown team. Like, look, playing in the big leagues is tough enough, but the idea of playing in your hometown, did that almost in some way take on like an added burden for you as coming up as a young player? You know what, looking back, um, there is a lot of pressure of playing at home. And I, I think a lot of players always dream of playing. And don't don't get me wrong, I wouldn't have done anything different in my career. The Cincinnati Reds were wonderful to me, uh, the minor leagues. Uh, and, you know, I, I actually got to 
watch Pete Rose get his, his uh, record-breaking hit, a guy that I watched in the 70s. And, and then Davey Concepcion, Tony Perez, I got to you know take, uh, take the field with these guys. So uh, it was a dream in itself. But it, you know, then it, it it moves on. But then you realize how much influence uh, guys like that uh, had in your career, and that's basically what this book uh, brought back was, you know, the the people that impacted you, the people that uh, give you thought processes, thought processes on how to succeed and and winning. And um, both organizations I was part of, the Reds at that time back in the seventies, the Big Red Machine, and the Yankees, they were about winning, and they are storied franchises historically. And, uh, you know, it, it's not a social event when you go to a baseball game. It's who wins or who loses. Uh, you know, you you know, when you wake up in New York, whether you're a Mets fan, Yankee fan, you're talking about the night before. Who won or lost? Not, uh, you know, I had a good time at the game. It's who won or lost. And that's the importance. And that's what I love about playing in New York. Talk me through 1992. So you're playing in Cincinnati for a chunk of your career. You win a world championship. And... I'll say it, Paul. I think it's one of the greatest trades in the history of the New York Yankees. Like, the Bambino is one. It's impossible <laughs> to top that one. But for me, Paul O'Neill for Roberto Kelly is highway robbery from a Yankee perspective. But at the time, you know, Yankee fans are looking at Roberto Kelly. He's an all-star. Mm-hmm. Who's this O'Neill? Can he hit left-handed pitching? For you personally, getting traded by your hometown team, did you feel betrayed? It wouldn't be trade. You, you you feel disappointed in yourself because when you're you know you're traded, it's it's kind of like you know they don't trade great players. They trade guys that they, in my mind, they trade you because they don't think you're good enough. And you know they got a good uh, uh you know a, a good guy in, in in return. Roberto Kelly was a good player. Don't get me wrong. Came to Cincinnati, did okay. Uh, but Gene Michael, I remember that night, him calling me and explaining how you know this team was going to turn around. And uh, they were going to base it on some of the players they brought in and they needed a left-handed, you know, hitter. And it just really put me at ease, at ease. And Gene Michael was a master at putting that team together and Buck Showalter taking over, you know, teaching, um, you know, how to prepare for games and things like that. Again, right when I went there, kind of unknown, but obviously the best thing that ever happened to me uh, was the day that I learned uh, that I was traded to the Yankees. Paul, you've seen it now with Buck with the New York Mets. The guy is just unbelievable. Everywhere he goes, he wins. He builds this sort of culture. It's Mm -hmm. obvious watching the Mets now for two, two and a half weeks that he has had an impact on that team. You talk about it in the book. What kind of influence did Buck Showalter specifically have on your career? Well, you know, I've enjoyed Buck ever since I went there because I've never seen anybody put the time and effort in uh, just preparing for possibly one out, one hit, the, the, how it would change the game that night. I mean, Buck Showalter was a player in the minor leagues and learned the game of baseball and loves the game of baseball. I think that he is into the numbers, but I still think he understands that people win games and cultures in the clubhouse. Uh, you know, there's rules uh, and, and they're old fashioned rules that baseball's mind today, but he stands by it. And I think that, um, you know, good teams win baseball games and good teams, great teams win playoffs and the best team wins the world series. And and to me, that sometimes is the people and it's not the analytics and it's not the paper that you can read numbers off. And I think Buck is really good at understanding. Having that feel for the game is such a must. And I wish more managers and more general managers throughout the sport understood that 95 though, Paul, you're coming off a batting title. 
you guys are coming off the, the bitter disappointment of the strike where you guys are the best team in the American League. Mm-hmm. You're winning. And it felt like in 95, it was a rallying cry to get Don Mattingly into the playoffs. But you specifically, you had this tight relationship with Donnie and you get moved up in the order to that three spot. Was that like, did you, you felt awkward about that, right? Because like, even though you're a batting yeah. champion, you're killing it with the Yankees. This is Don Mattingly. He bats third in the order. Was that weird for you? It, it certainly was. I can still remember the day I was in Texas and, and Buck uh, called me in the office and Donnie was in the office. And um, he said, you know, I'm going to move. I'm going to put you third and I'm going to put Donnie down a little bit. And I literally was embarrassed because you're right. When I was traded to the Yankees, Don Mattingly was the Yankees. I've never heard a player that played with him or against him from any other organization say anything bad about Mattingly. And that's a compliment because, you know, not everybody in this game likes the way you play or likes the way you are as a person. Mattingly was absolutely the epitome of a baseball player to me. And uh, he was really the first guy that I sat and had talks with when I was traded to the Yankees. Uh, still to this day, uh, you know, I talked to him and uh, we, you know, we, we remember, remember stories. Um, and that 95 season you were talking about, believe me, when he took the field that night, I knew something was special in New York. It was just unbelievable how much the fans were behind him. Paul, game two, 95, Mattingly's homer or the 96 Girardi triple. That old stadium gives me goosebumps <laughs> thinking about it. What was the latter moment in Yankee Stadium? Donnie's homer or Girardi's triple? You know what? I think Mattingly's home run had the excitement of, you know, this is what we came here for. And then Girardi, I was fortunate enough to be running the bases. I scored on that triple. And I've told many people, and they think I'm exaggerating, I actually felt the plate like shaking. I mean, the the ground and the stadium were shaking. And again, it's just because of, how far, I mean, how long it took to get to the playoffs in 95 and then back to the World Series in 96. So I think that the people were ready for it. And, you know, as I look back, talking about the perfect time to come to a team when they're rebuilding and all of a sudden they start winning. I mean, I I couldn't have asked for a better thing. You know, Paulie, I got into some arguments with my parents back in the mid-90s because they loved Lou Piniella. They loved Lou Piniella as a Yankee. I hated Lou Pinella because <laughs> he's the manager of the Mariners. He was always starting trouble. Like those were some intense games. You guys play with Seattle. You hitting a home run off Norm Charlton. I, I watched during COVID when we had nothing to do that Gary Thorne call. Oh yeah. Paul Neal. Yeah, like yeah. that. So those wars, you think about it, you're a part of it, but Lou was your manager. And mm-hmm. in many ways you and Lou, well, like the same guy on the Yankees, Lou in the seventies, you with the nineties Yankees, that dynamic, a lot of love, hate there. Is that fair to say? Uh, you know what? He expected a lot out of me. I mean, I don't think that we win in 1990 unless Lou Pinella comes to manage us because we needed that, that, that culture. Lou came from New York expecting to win, going to world series. And he brought that in immediately 1990, our first year, we won a championship. And I don't think that was a coincidence. And you know, he expected a lot out of me as far as what he wanted me to be as a player. It wasn't the most comfortable way for me to play. Uh, you know, the striking out, the trying to hit home runs, that just, that, that was not me. And that's what was such a relief when I went to New York. I was able to just hit uh, the way I wanted to hit. And, uh, you know, the numbers will fall as they may. Uh, I have a lot of respect for Lou Pinella. A lot of times the media 
you know, they run with things. Um, the Seattle thing, you know, I think Lou had a lot to, uh, to, you know, when you play with a team like the Yankees and then you go back, sure, you want to beat them. Oh, I mean, he wanted to stick it to them. I would, too. I don't blame him for that. Absolutely. Now looking at it after the fact, I would, Absolutely. too. And there were some times where I felt like, you know, he would, you know, single things out. I mean, there would be a ball flying over my head for some reason. And it, it wasn't a coincidence. But you know what? There was a rivalry. And, you know, when I look back at those times through the 90s, you know, the Seattle Mariners were kind of a thorn in our side. We could not beat them out in Seattle. There was always a way for them to come back. And and then, you know, as we went on, then it became the Indians for a year. We couldn't beat them. So, you know, you need rivalries in, in, in sports. And now it's gotten back to the true rivalry with the Yankees and the Red Sox. Um, I, it's just, you know, when you go through times of winning, the rivals are usually the teams that you have trouble beating. And, and that's the case here. 1996 and Paul I think I'm still devastated over 95 like as a seven-year-old kid that's <laughs> that will always as bad as 01 was as bad as 04 was like just the way that game went down it still crushes me to this day Buck's gone Donnie's gone Velarde's gone uh the team looks just so different mm-hmm. but yet Joe Torre comes in and there's this like soothing presence about him did you know going into spring training, even with all these changes, we got something special cooking or did it take time? Well, I think when you come off of a year where you make the playoffs, you expect to make them again. But then all of a sudden when Joe Torrey walks in and I could tell from the, the first speech that he gave us in spring training that this he, he understands the game. He understands that people play the game. And if you're uh, you're not, not happy off the field, you're not good on the field. And he was so good at that. And then with Don Zimmer, you know, you kind of had Joe's presence and then you had Zim, who'd been in the game for 50 some years at this with humor and stuff. It just it was an absolutely perfect fit. And then we had, uh, you know, a, a perfect amount of veterans. And then obviously when Derek Cheater, Posada and, and Pettit and Mariano show up, it was just the perfect mix and the perfect storm. And, you know, going through that time, you, you just think that this is normal. This is the way it's going to happen. And now looking back, you realize that how special it was because it's very hard to do in sports, any professional sport, to continue to be well, uh, be good, and go to the World Series and win. I got to know, Paul, how did you make that catch in 96 on one leg? <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. because watching it live, everybody's reaction is, holy shit, the Yankees just lost this game because that ball was a rocket. Polonia fouled off like seven fastballs in a row. Did you know off the bat I'm catching this? Or was there a moment of, oh, no? You know, I tell you, the moment was after I made the catch. And, and it, it, it was a funny story because Jose Cardinal, Poloni was fouling balls off the other way. And so he actually moved me to right center field a couple steps before as the, uh, the bat went on. And I, when I remember making that catch, I wasn't at my best. I had some hamstring issues, which everybody does going into the World Series. You're all beat up. It's the end of the year. But the only thing I remember was how great a game that was, a pitched game with Pettit and Smoltz. But then as I ran back to the infield, it kind of like goes through your mind. You're going to shake hands, but you're going through it. It's going through your mind. What if I wouldn't have caught that ball? And that's the thing that you don't want to be remembered for in a World Series game is not making the play uh, to win a game like that. One of my favorite moments of you actually was in a loss. I don't know if you hear this often, but it wasn't a loss because it was the game five against the Indians. You're the last out and 
that play at second base, it, it, it just symbolizes Paul O'Neill in a nutshell. Not to blow smoke, but in all seriousness, you're throwing your body out there. I'm like, how did this guy not separate his shoulder, his legs, his limbs? And then Steinbrenner, after the game, calls you the warrior. And you mentioned this in the book. You didn't like that name right out of the gate. Like, that was all hard. Yankee fans loved and embraced Paul O'Neill. But at first, the warrior for you was not something you liked. Well, I mean, when the owner calls you that, it, it, it is kind of initially kind of embarrassing. Now I look back at it, I'm like, you know, what, what That's an unbelievable awesome. thing. Yeah. yeah, what an unbelievable thing for Mr. Steinbrenner to do that. But, you know, looking back at that play, you know, I, I knew I hit the ball well. And it was, I always say it's the problem with being a line drive hitter. The ball went off the top of the wall and it went right to Grissom. And around, as I'm rounding first base, I'm thinking I, I, I could be thrown out here. So, you know, you think of any way you can get into second base and you don't want to end the game going into second base. And truth be known, I don't know if you know this, but I, I did kind of a, a weird slide and I caught my thumb on oh, the yeah. base. Oh, yeah. I caught my thumb on the base and, and Joe, you know, said, you know, you were going to take you out. And I said, you know, I can score. It's no problem. But truth be known, I probably wouldn't have played that next series. But you talk about a, uh, you know, just a devastating loss. Um, that that was unbelievable because I, I just felt like everything was going our way. Mariana was in there. Uh, you know, it, it's just the, the way this is supposed to be. And, and it was a great series. And, you know, it, it just didn't end our way. But, you know, you learn on things. And I think that by learning that, you know, the, the fear of losing in 95, I think 96 happens. And I don't know that, uh, you know, if you don't lose in 97, that those previous, you know, the, the, the years ahead don't happen. So, uh, you know, the ups and downs of sports are tough. And, you know, the, the short series when it's final that you're out of the, the you know, the, the championship or whatever, it, it, it uh, you know, those are the memories you don't forget. Paul, we see it now because my generation Yankee fans spoiled. We expected you guys to win every single year. It was ridiculous. <laughs> I don't think we're ever going to see four out of five championships in baseball ever again. I really don't. I think it's just too damn hard too many playoff rounds, you name it. What about you and your team? What was the ingredient? What was the element that made you guys so at ease and so comfortable in big games? When guys tense up, when guys are dealing with the pressure, you guys thrived and relished playing under that pressure. What was it about those teams? You know, it was really weird when you kind of peel back the layers of those years. I mean, when we added players, which Mr. Steinbrenner would always do to make our team better, it, it, it David Justice or Cecil Fielder, they were the perfect fit and they helped. David Cohn came in. And then, you know, you really have to, uh, you know, throw out that Mr. Steinbrenner kept that team together. You know, a lot of teams win and then they let the, the team go because they have to pay them extra money or whatever. But Mr. Steinbrenner kept that team together for the most part and, and, and allowed us to try to repeat and then repeat again and repeat again. And like I said, it was just the perfect group of guys. Uh, it was the perfect manager. Uh, it was the perfect bullpen coach at Mel Stoudemire. It, it just everything. When you write down on paper, it's like, wow, this was a good team. And don't get me wrong, good teams don't always win. It takes a lot more than that. We had our breaks, but you know, we believed that we were going to win. And that old stadium to this day, to me, still has that feeling like something good is going to happen, and the Yankees are some gonna, somehow going to win. I'm glad that you mentioned that because your final home game. I was there. I was in the upper deck, chanting your name, like 55,000 other folks. Best game. It's funny, Paul. I think about the three best Yankee games I've ever attended. Game five, the Jeter 
home game, the walk-off, even mm-hmm. though it was, you know, regular season game, and then the DD wildcard game. But your game's number one. Those teams are my teams. They're my heart. But for you, you got 55,000 Yankee fans chanting Paul O'Neill, realizing the significance that it's going to be your final home game. Yankees are losing two to nothing in the ninth inning. And Paul, after the night before, everyone was thinking, do they have this in them again? But down to the last out, I'm like, there's no way. And Ambrosia says the home run, pandemonium, you name it. But take me through, and you talk about this in the book, what is going through your mind as that ninth inning is unfolding against the Diamondbacks? Well, I mean, let's let's go back to the beginning of this interview. When you're dreaming in the backyard as a 10-year-old kid about playing in the major leagues, you know, you dream about home runs, you dream about all these things. You don't know how to react to something like that because you're not ready for it. I mean, here I am out there and 50,000 people are chanting your name and finally you realize they are chanting your name. And then what do you do? I'm in right field and we're losing a World Series game. Uh, That was the weird part about it. But when I look back, I mean, it still kind of gives me goosebumps that, uh, you know, the New York fans took it upon themselves to do that. And when I remember that year, you know, as weird as the world was with 9-11, uh, that's really the only world. So I, I look at those three home games. Those were the three, one of the three, you know, those, those games were amazing. They were all comebacks. They were unbelievable. It's like New York needed that. I don't look at the outcome of the World Series uh, that year as much as I, I you know, kind of look at those three games and how special they were. I felt the exact same way. And like game four and game five, to have that back-to-back nights, Ninth inning, two outs, down to your final out, and you hit a game-tying home run. Absolute insanity. I didn't know this. You mentioned it in the book. You thought about coming out of retirement? Even after Paul Neal <laughs> and 55,000 and all these World Series championships. And the Yankees could have used you in 2002, by the way. They missed your bat in the outfield. But you thought about it. Well, it was funny because I was actually doing a game. And I was in, in the locker room, and, and Joe Torre came over to me. And uh, Rivera, I don't know if you remember, Rivera had, had hurt himself running into like the wall or a golf cart at BP. He said, how long would it take you to get ready? And I kind of laughed, not knowing that he was pretty serious. And he called me in the office and he said, I said, Joe, I'm going on vacation tomorrow because I was doing this game. Uh, it was like my first summer vacation in 20 some years with my family because you, you, you play during the summer. These are the things you do when you retire. And boy, you talk about your head starting to spin. So we go down, uh, I'm on the beach, I'm starting to run again, I'm starting to throw again. And um, had thought about it, Gene Michael said, the best thing you can do, you've had a rest, you'll, you'll be good for the second half of the season. They couldn't wait. They ended up signing Raul Mondesi. And, um, you know, who knows what would have happened. But uh, I, I don't have any regrets on when I left the game or, or how I left the game. Because, you know, the New York people, as yourself, don't forget the teams that were good, the teams that have won. And, you know, after this interview is over, I might have to just stay on because you've got more stories than I got. You can jog my memory of some stuff. I mean, it's amazing to me how much pride and tradition uh, are associated with the Yankees. And then talk me through this winter. And it's long overdue because nobody wore 21. They're retiring numbers left and right. I'm like, my guy O'Neill should be out there. He's got a monument out there, but let's get his number retired, for goodness sakes. I don't want to see another Yankee wearing 21. Was that surreal for you, getting that call from the Yankees announcing Paul O'Neill Day, August 21st this year? I'll be there, by the way. We'll be rocking. 
I like that. You got that shirt on too. Aren't I think I got to wear that. I do have the vintage <laughs> O'Neill jersey somewhere at my parents' house. I'm going to have to find that. Right. But we will be there for sure. I, I appreciate that. I, I literally, to this day, I mean, it happened, what, two months ago. Um, every single day, I, I kind of pinch myself because it's by far, you know, the biggest honor uh, personally that uh, ever came to me baseball-wise. I mean, there's something about the New York Yankees and the numbers and the, and the people that have gone before you. And, you know, I, when I look at that stadium, you know, the, the ceremony and, and all that is such a great thing. But then to see that number up there and nobody that it won't go away, that nobody will wear it again. That to me is an unbelievable honor. And I, again, I, I can't explain how uh, thankful I am to the fans and to, you know, the New York Yankees uh, for giving me this opportunity. I love that you have this connection in the broadcast booth with Kay and Coney. And I go back to Phil Rizzuto, Paul, and you with the ice cream and Studio 21. Like, there is this sort of, like, goofiness that I never knew Paul O'Neill had because you're, like, the most intense guy on planet Earth and you don't realize, you know, different sides of a ball player when they're on the field. They're going to act a certain way. I love that you have shown that side as a broadcaster. And I'm curious, do you have currently a favorite guy in the Yankees that's maybe gives you some shades of Paul O'Neill in his prime. Is that because I have a guy, I'm curious if it's the same one. Yeah. I mean, hitting wise, it's definitely DJ LeMay. Bingo. Uh, I mean, exactly. By the way, and LeMay's first year and O'Neill's first year, quite similar. Really, really good. Well, he, uh, to me, I mean, he doesn't have a, uh, uh, you know, there's some hitters that go up with one thing in their mind. He doesn't have, just one thing in his mind. He has one thing as far as putting a good bat together. If the ball's away, if the ball's in, you hit it in different spots. Um, you know, last year, a lot of people came down on him. DJ LeMahieu, sometimes you just don't have great years. He was kind of beat up. I think he's off to a great start. I think he'll have a great bounce back year. Uh, I enjoy watching him hit. Obviously, Aaron Judge, you know, I, I talk to him a lot. I mean, I, I'm in awe of his power. Uh, but not everybody has that power. So not everybody can be Aaron Judge. So to be, uh, you, you take your, yourself back on what you could do on a baseball field much closer to like DJ LeMayhew than, than Aaron Judge or Big G. Well, and thank heavens, Paul, they finally have a legitimate lefty in the lineup in Rizzo. Like, can you imagine? <laughs> think about your Yankee teams and all the lefties that were in that lineup. They had no lefties as of last year. I'm like, go get, go get a legit lefty first baseman. Thank heavens for that. Final one. Final one, Benitez at bat, and you mentioned this in the book. You you were shot. You had not you had nothing left because I heard I did baseball night in New York yesterday with Sal Licata, and uh -huh. he's a Mets fan, and I love the anguish <laughs> I, because O'Neill killed the Mets, which Yankee fans know. Mel Rojas, Benitez, great World Series. Paul O'Neill killed the Mets. That at bat though, you had nothing left. I just, I didn't feel, I, if he knew the way I felt at the plate, like I got no chance here. I mean, if you look at that at bat, I'm fouling balls over the other dugout. That's the yes. kind of stuff you do in Little League. I mean, that's when you have no chance. And then you just keep fouling and fouling. And, and by the time you get to 3-2, you think, maybe I got a chance here. And I tell you, there was nobody as happy to hear ball four than I was. And it did turn into a big inning. But believe me, I wasn't going to line one into right field the way I felt that. That, that night I just he got ahead of me he was a hard thrower and like I said I think pitchers sometimes kind of overthink it and I think bad hitters do too but uh if he knew what was going on in my head at that time he would have just thrown it right down the middle Paulie real quick this is going to be a championship caliber Yankee team what needs to happen for them 
Well, there, I mean, there's a lot of stuff. I think Eric Cole needs to, you, you need a, you need an ace. I mean, you need an ace that you, you're basically going to win. Uh, I think Aaron Judge has his year. And I think DJ Lemay, who bounces back. And I think Labor Torres becomes the player that they're waiting for him to become like he did years ago. Paul Neal, swinging a hit. Nine innings of what baseball taught me. The book is fantastic. Jack Curry and Paulie kill it. We'll see you on August the 21st. That's going to be one hell of a day, Paul. I'm looking forward to it. Hey, I really appreciate it, man. Thanks so much. Man, that was a lot of fun. I mean, I could talk baseball with Paul Neal all freaking day. And the book is fantastic. I'm a couple of chapters in. Uh, must, must read if you're a diehard Yankee fan. Highly, highly recommend. Okay. Jeff Money. The floor is yours, bro. I'm off to a stellar start here in the second round. The Monday card, the world is your oyster, my friend. What do you got? What up, JJ? Jeff Money here with a handicapper picks. This could be for tomorrow. Monday, May the 2nd, I'm going with the two NBA games. My first game, I'm going to go with the Dallas Mavericks, plus the five and a half over the Phoenix Suns. And game number two, I'm going to take the Miami Heat, minus the eight over the 76ers. Again, I'm going to take the Dallas Mavericks, plus the five and a half. And I'm going to take the Miami Heat, minus the eight. Let's see if we got any family plays. And everyone can always follow all my daily plays on Twitter, at Jeff Money. Okay, JJ, I'm out of here. Let's go. Let's go, Jeff Money. I am with you on the Dallas Mavericks. I think they will be very spunky right out of the gate in this series. I am grabbing them plus the five and a half, so we have a family play there. Um, the Miami game is now so overvalued. Now, I locked in Miami with House for the series and minus one and a half games before this Embiid news went down. Embiid going to miss game one and two. I think there's a good chance he comes back with a mask probably for game three. Um, I still love Miami in the series. I just don't know about seven and a half. Like, that's that's kind of a stay away as far as I'm concerned. They're going to win. I just don't know how much they're going to win by, if that makes sense. You could call it a cop-out. You could call it whatever you want. And I have a parlay that House and I put in that is pending, but we need Phoenix and Miami to win. So there's, uh, there's a lot at stake for the Monday NBA card. And Tuesday, you have a Met doubleheader. You have Yankees-Blue Jays. And we have Rangers game one. We will be on Spotify Live at around 11.30. We'll say around 11.30 after all the action, your calls, your reaction. You don't want to miss it. We're going to be doing these now pretty weekly. In fact, not pretty. We are going to be doing them weekly. Tuesday is probably going to be the sweet spot. So for those of you who we used to the Tuesday pod, you may get it in Tuesday pod form, but sometimes you got to be on a Spotify live. So we're going to pick and choose our battles, as they say. And one parting note, I got to salute the legend, the great Stu Finer. I was at his ridiculous, out of control shindig. I mean, the only thing is I was the, uh, I was the sober monitor. I was the designated driver driving our buddy CJ back because I had to work. I got to do a pod. I got to do television. So, and I got to get all the way out to Long Island for goodness sakes. But I mean, the food was outrageous. The setup was outrageous. I mean, he basically lives in like the most beautiful backyard in all of Long Island. And the kicker, they had blackjack tables set up for this party. So I am in the back. I am watching the Yankee game and I am playing blackjack in the back with a cast of thousands. So hats off to Stefan. Fabulous, fabulous job. Stefan, hats off to you. Great Monday show. We are back. Remember, Spotify Live Tuesday, 1130. Don't want to miss it. Hot on Thursday. Playoff hockey. Big baseball week. 
we go. Take care. Enjoy your Monday. Be good, everybody.